This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. Good morning and welcome to Dojo Live this May 10th, 2023. Uh, My name is Kim Lantis and it's my pleasure to be co-hosting today along with Jorge Hernandez, machine learning engineer here at Encora. Hi, Jorge. Hi, Kim. Thank you for having me Thank you because today's show is really going to be a show where we get to geek out because we're speaking with Dr. Irv Lustig, who is the Optimization Principal at Princeton Consultants. Irv, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, it's going to be great because we're talking about optimization's essential role in the AI revolution, how that inter- intertwines with data science, and of course, what it's used for, uh, the skills that are needed to apply it. But before we dive into that topic today, uh, Irv, we'd love to get to know you a bit better, your story, your passion, and what's led up to your time with Princeton, please. Uh, yeah, so I um, got my PhD at Stanford in an area called operations research, and the area of optimization has kind of fallen under the OR umbrella um, going back, uh, you know, 60, maybe even 70 years now. And um, after that, I taught at Princeton University for six years, and then I invented some algorithms that are used in, alg- in optimization. I joined a small company called Cplex Optimization, Inc., they got acquired by a bigger company called iLog, which got acquired by IBM. And during that time, I moved from doing technical things from development to product marketing to sales. Uh, and then my last few years at IBM, I was in research. Um, and then I decided in, most of my career had been involved with Cplex and sales. Uh, I wanted to get on the other side instead of being the producer and seller, but to be more on the consuming side. So I joined Princeton just over eight years ago. Um, to start working with customers more on the applications of optimization. Um, you know, one thing that we I would see is there's a lot of folks like myself with a similar background, PhDs in OR, um, who would be building optimization applications and they would give a call and they'd say, I gr- built this great model and it, you know, it's all, saves my company $10 million and nobody wants to use it. And the answer is, is because they really weren't thinking about the entire journey of what you need to do from understanding the problem you're solving all the way to you know, building out a technical solution but all, and then deploying the solution, not just in terms of technical deployment, but also how you're going to change the way that people are working and making decisions. Um, yeah. And so here at Princeton, that's kind of our DNA is we worry about that whole life cycle from beginning to end. And uh, and I had known our CEO, Steve Sachihara, um, going back to actually when I was teaching at Princeton, and Steve was always bugging me about joining. I said, okay, it's time to move on and move in and, and join uh, and be on the other side. And so I've been you know, helping us grow our optimization business over the last eight years. I love that. I love that. I love how varied your your story is and your adventure spirit, I think, to, to taste all the flavors. And I think it must make you so much more robust because of it. I love that. Uh, talking about Princeton, you did... Uh, touch on that at the high level, but what exactly are you doing? The problem that you're solving for your customers? So um, our tagline is uh, management consulting and information technology. We've actually been in business for over 40 years. Um, And it started mostly back in the 80s where 
we were mostly doing management consulting, but looking, you know, the computer revolution was kind of starting, you know, PCs were in their infancy back in the eighties. And so how could we use technology to help solve business problems? As that evolved, um, we kind of noticed that, hey, this optimization stuff can be used and as a way of making better decisions. So, um, and this is before I joined eight years ago, we had done a number of different projects at different companies. And so now here, um, we, you know, we have, we still do some of that same business that we've always done. Uh, we do a lot of work actually in the rail industry, helping them uh, build better decision support systems um, for, for rail and, and trucking and transportation. Uh, but my role has been kind of to expand out of those traditional transportation industries and find applications that go from, you know, from retail, e-commerce, healthcare, uh, government, um, media. We've done, I've done, worked on applications, finance, all of those kinds of areas. Um, and kind of, ex which we know optimization actually has been applied anywhere. And we'll I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but to try to help us deliver those kind of value to our customers in terms of helping them make better decisions. I love it. You mentioned the PC revolution. We also wanted to talk about that, the optimization revolution, as well as the AI revolution. How are those two things converging? Well, it's kind of interesting things, coming, <laughs> it's kind of interesting coming at it as somebody who's been doing this, you know, for almost my, from really my whole career, going back to my, you know, my PhD thesis was an optimization. Um, Optimization has been around for a really long time. It's actually been, it's pretty fundamental in terms of the kinds of decisions that companies make uh, every day in running their business. You sometimes don't even know um, that it's there. So for example, when you go to buy an airline ticket, the airline is determining how many seats it should allocate at different prices on the plane. That's an optimization problem, all right? They're also determining um, how they should fleet their schedule. So they've got, you have an airline that's got, you know, 737s and seven triple sevens and Airbuses and all different size aircraft. Well, how do you route them and assign them the flights? You don't want to put big planes and flights with low demand or lo small planes and flights with big demand, but they also have to connect. You know, they start in one place, they fly to another place, that may, then they have to turn the plane within an hour and go somewhere else. Well, how do you figure out how to fleet, how to fleet your schedule? That's an optimization problem. How do you? And then, what do you do when things go wrong? Well, well, you have to recover. <laughs> exactly right. So, uh, much of the applications that existed um, back then were more strategic. You would have, for example, um, manufacturers would be deciding uh, where should I place my distribution centers so I can deliver my products to my customers. Well, if I decide to build a distribution center, I don't do that every day. You make a decision. It takes a year to build a place and hire people and get it up and running. So it's an ongoing process. It's more of a strategic capital intensive decision. Today, and this is probably where the revolution part comes in, is that we're starting to see it being applied in applications that are more operational, where it's getting used to make decisions on a regular basis, 24 by 7, um, that are used to make decisions about what, how should I best allocate my resources in the near term, not just the long term of a decision, a distribution center, but what should I be doing in the next five minutes or the next few hours or the next day it varies from application to application. So you can go to things like um, in finance, if you have a portfolio, say for your 401k, 
if it's being managed well, uh, or the mutual funds are doing their job, they're actually using optimization to decide how to allocate their various investments, balancing risk versus reward. So it's kind of all around you. It's like the thing that's you know inside of a lot of applications that we don't see. The convergence with AI is that AI has kind of grown because as has optimization, we have all this data. So it helps us make better decisions. Data is a huge driver. Um, and but the AI applications, you know, were are typically made without looking at allocations of resources. They're made on kind of single types of things. So, for example, you may do a machine learning application that um, tries to identify fraudulent credit credit card transactions. So now, as a new transaction comes in, you say, "Okay, let me go down my decision tree and." hey, this one I believe to be fraudulent. Maybe you have somebody then call and look into it more closely. Optimization is making decisions on a much broader scale of, of multiple decisions. If I'm assigning crews in an airline, I'm thinking about, I got a lot of flights. I have a lot of crews. How am I going to move those crews around my airline network? And I have to make that decision all at once for what I'm going to do for, typically it's done in the next month, but then if there's a blizzard in Newark or a, you know, um, some other type of weather event that occurs that yeah. delays Paternity things. leave, maternity leave. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, it's things. more about the real-time things about how do you then re recover and get your crews back in place, et cetera. So the, what we like to think of, you know, the AI term is quite broad and some different people define it different ways. Um, the colleagues of mine like to say that we're kind of in this, not the type of AI of, you know, like a chat GPT that's, you know, cr doing creations of things, but more that we can automate processes that humans do. So if a human can go through and determine, here's my schedule of my people that are going to work tomorrow, they're working on a spreadsheet and moving people around or what have you, optimization can solve the problem in a couple of seconds right, and give them an automated decision. So it's automated the intelligence that the human was doing, but it's doing it much faster because it's all automated. So it kind of fits in with AI. And what, you know, what we're seeing today is that more and more people are becoming more aware of optimization and its benefits, which is kind of related to the revolution that's kind of happening with AI. The difference is AI and machine learning and all these things have lots of people like IBM and big companies marketing and talking about it. We haven't had that kind of investment happening in the optimization side. Huh. Optimization sounds sort of like, I don't know, oxygen. What is it? Oxygen, nitrogen, all these things floating around us that we definitely need, but don't even realize that. Yeah, I worked with a VP of marketing when I was at iLog and you know, he used to carry around a Coca-Cola can and he would say, that Coca-Cola can is sitting in my hand because optimization got it here. Right. It was used in determining how to make the Coke cans, how to bundle the things, where it should come from, which which uh, facility should be making it, how it got shipped, how the transportation was determined all the way along the entire supply chain optimization being used. And in fact, in supply chain is actually one of the main applications of optimization. You know, so that's why I say the products that we use every day mm -hmm. uh, have optimization touched it. You just didn't know about it. For sure. Jorge, what's your take on all of this that you're hearing from Irv? So uh, I actually, when I studied in college, uh, one of the books that I love to read was this big book. I can't remember the title. I wish I, I did remember the title on all ours, which was on optimization research. At the time, the, uh, where I studied, uh, didn't have optimization research as an option. But it's always struck me how important uh, optimization research is. 
like it's basically what won us the world war so um, exactly. yeah that that's like it where, where it was really uh worth it where i think people saw hey you know this thing is like we need it everywhere and as, as you said kim it's it's invisible to us so uh, what I will ask Irv is, like, how do we give it more visibility? How, how do we help people become aware? Uh, as you said, there are these tools that can help you because you talked about the journey. And one of my experiences with machine learning is that people tend to focus a lot on, yeah, we have this algorithm and it does something, but actual machine learning systems, uh, there's a famous paper by, from Google, which shows this graph where you have the ML bit is this tiny square, and then you have all of this whole other uh, rectangles around it that make it into an actual product. So those bits, the algorithms are, are relatively small compared to everything around them. How do you make people aware that, hey, yes, you need this whole journey? What does that look like for, for you folks at Princeton Consulting? That's a, that's a really good question. So what we look for are people who are making decisions and the way I like to describe it is, is how do you allocate resources? So you can be allocating um, things like in a supply chain, you might be figuring out, you know, who do I, who do I buy my nuts and bolts for to build my product? If I'm assembling computers, you know, you got to worry about memory boards and other chips and monitors, et cetera, et cetera. How do, how do you do those kinds of decisions? Um, and, and how do you, who do you source things from? So it's often about making these decisions where I've, often financially driven of how do I allocate resources or I have to maybe do some form of scheduling of people um, or uh, of different things. So you have to think of it for, first from an application standpoint. So one of the things that I like to say is, you know, I see, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of data scientists start off and say, hey, I've got data. Just let me apply my algorithms and I'll make the magic happen. And the answer is you have to pick you're, you've got a hammer and you're looking for the nail. And the answer is first find the nail and then find your right hammer that you want to use. And so optimization is can be one of the hammers in the toolbox that you use to be able to solve these critical business problems. In terms of awareness- Excuse me, in your analogy, the nail is the problem, correct? The nail is the problem. That okay. The nail is the business problem we want to solve. And then you also have to understand that if I'm going to bang that nail with my hammer, what benefit am I going to get? In the cases of optimization, so we start the discussion and say, "Yeah, you can bang you, it with the handle of a screwdriver, right? Right, but exactly. it's not going to get the same result." <laughs> exactly. So we 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 talk about things like, and say, "Okay, if you're to solve this problem, what's the benefit? Are you going to be reducing costs? Are you going to be increasing profits? Um, there's applications that occur with respect to you know saving lives." Um, things, what is the overall benefit? The other part of it, so, sometimes the benefit isn't just about making more money or saving costs, et cetera. But sometimes the benefit is just productivity, that you have people that are have been spending a long time do, making decisions manually, and now you can automate the decision process. So you have to, so we start off really trying to identify the problem and coming up with a vision of how a solution based on optimization can deliver value, but also worry about, okay, if once this tool is in your hands, and now you have something that you can use and it's in, in an application. Um, how's that going to change the way you work? How are you? So one line I like to say is sometimes we are able to do things that can say, we can come up with a better way of utilizing your workforce. But suppose the result of that is you don't need 50 people anymore. 
Now we have to have a conversation with the HR department saying, you've got to worry about severance and things like this if we app in, do this application. So sometimes these downstream effects that occur because we've solved a business problem, you have to kind of anticipate ahead of time in talking with our clients and saying, if you do this, be aware of how behaviors may change and how people may, may react to it. Uh, the reality is as humans, we're kind of adverse to change. So we do a, use a lot of change management techniques to get adoption of these types of things. And to create the awareness, it's about telling stories. It's about doing uh, events like this, right? Of, you know, indicating the kinds of applications and the kinds of benefits that people have seen from those applications. So I'd like to, to, to chat another thing, which uh, struck me. So we live in a just-in-time world. Uh, everything is, as you said, uh, lots of decisions come from this is what's financially best. This is what gives us the most profit. This is what gives us the best uh, performance for our workforce, all of that. But I think one of the things that the pandemic taught us is that that makes our systems and our, um, our workflows fragile. So how is that affecting the way you work with your clients? Are they still like, oh, just focus on the financial side or are they starting to, to go like, oh, what's the trade-off here? And what kind of tools do you have in optimization research to tackle those kinds of problems? Well, or, so, so yeah. we use, so, I mean, optimization is effectively about evaluating trade-offs. So, you know, one thing you can do is I, I could say, I have a potential decisions I can make right? So putting optimization to the side for a moment, here's a list of, of potential decisions I can make. And I have some key performance indicators that indicate the quality of those decisions, right? That's kind of an enumeration method. In optimization, it's basically searching all the possible spaces of what those what the answers are, considering the trade-offs and assuming that there's generally, the key thing is there's an objective function. There's some way of measuring the quality of a decision. So when it comes into things like, you know, what the pandemic exposed was risk. So for example, the lots of the supply chain planning models that are using optimization were based upon demand forecasts, but demand forecasts went out, out of the window in March of 2020 because demand patterns change, right? We had a run in toilet paper in the first couple of months of the, of the pandemic. And why did it run out? Because there was nobody in February who was planning the production of toilet paper that anticipated the spike of demand in March and April of 2020. So the question is, is how can we make better decisions with uncertainty and understand this? And actually that's kind of cutting edge right now in terms of how it gets applied because the question that we struggle with is how do we measure uncertainty, right? We can talk about a demand forecast. We can talk about and say, well, we think it's within this range, et cetera. But the, you know, how do you want to handle the spike that might occur in demand or the reverse low demand? Um, how does that, you know, that affects your inventories, that all sorts of different things. Um, and how much do you want to hedge against that uncertainty? So, you know, it very much depends upon the nature of the applications that we're ending up working on. Because the uncertainty part is very hard to quantify, our customers are generally kind of saying, you know, we're not ready to go there yet. That's that's probably the next frontier. Maybe in five years, we'll be talking about how that's getting used in a better way. Um, not to say that in the area of research and papers, there's a huge amount of people that have proposed ways of solving these problems given some measure of uncertainty. The problem with most of those papers, in my opinion, is 
they, we still don't know how to measure uncertainty. Yeah. And I think when we figure that out, then would we be able to kind of answer the kind of question you were getting at, right? But at least now with the applications of all the advances that are happening in AI, I'm guessing when the uncertain or the unforeseen rather does happen, you're able to pivot a lot quicker. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. So I mean, so what happens? So I'll give you an example. We're working on right now um, a scheduling application. So uh, this company um, has they do they have to schedule a set of tasks every year. So at the end of the year, they determine the schedule for the task. The tasks take anywhere from one to fourteen months, any number of days, and but at, and they have to assign people to these tasks. But each person can only do a certain number of tasks at a time. So the question is, how do I come up with the schedule so that nobody gets too much work, but I get everything done in the course of the year? So at the end of the year, you publish out a schedule. But the issue is, is that they've estimated how long each of these tasks are going to happen. Well, now it's May 10th. We're in the middle of the year. Some of the tasks got done early. Some of the tasks are taking longer. And all, if today they notice that a task is taking longer, they have to like, they do, I call it the wild goose chase. They chase around and they'd send a bunch of messages. Can you accommodate if I make my, I need another month of your person to do this and all this kind of stuff. So we're building a system for them that's going to allow them to react to these changes in the environment so they can reschedule the future based upon knowledge that they're gaining about how things are happening on the ground. Nice. Like this, and, these tweakings. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a reaction. It's a reaction to this, but it, the, this concept of, so we, and we worked hard with them and actually in our solution design phase before we wrote a line of code and touched a piece of data we said to them you have two problems you have this annual scheduling problem which is what they actually put out their rfps for and you also have this operational scheduling problem which is happening in the middle of the year and they're different the underlying way of solving them actually is pretty similar but the context of how the data comes in if i so for example if it's today, May 10th, and I'm looking at my schedule, am I allowed to change the schedule of something that I thought was going to begin tomorrow? Maybe not because I've lined up resources already, but maybe I'm allowed to reschedule something that's scheduled for a month from now. So we have these conversations about how are you going to manage change? What changes are allowed to make things more reactive and you know, to address the point that, that you were saying, Kim, about being able to make a decision and react quicker to these kind of unforeseen events. Nobody could predict mm -hmm. these things that are occur because what changes the lens of their task yeah. is the tasks are doing a discovery process and all of a sudden, oh, we discovered this. Oh, it's gonna take another you know, 10 days. So this is what happens and, and, it's, and it's very, very hard to predict. Yeah, and I can see how the benefits of optimization go so, so much further out than just the financial or the revenue side, right? Because we're even talking about people's state of mind their happiness at work, like stress levels of constantly Absolutely, having yeah. to adjust and shift, or even I think just conflict and like annoyances that you might have with providers, with coworkers or whatever else. Um, it's it's really, really cool. Yeah, and, and actually I should, I should add and, and comment to that is when we're making decisions that are going to involve what people are doing, like a changing a schedule, you have to really think hard about the communication aspects of it that happen after the fact. Like, how do we communicate to these people that their schedule has changed, right? Um, we're doing another case where we're scheduling um, patients and the technicians that take care of the patients. Um, I can change the schedule of technicians because that's under the company's control. But I can't change patients without getting on the phone and saying, are you okay if I move your appointment? 
It's a different type of discussion that you have to have. So we've built a system that allows them to say, well, I have an existing schedule. How much better if I'm allowed to move five patients of you know my 40 for the day? And they'll look at it and they'll it'll pick five patients and has some metrics to measure quality of the schedule. They'll look at those five patients and say, wait a minute, there's no way we can call Joe Smith at his 9 a.m. He always likes coming in at 9 a.m. We better not change him. We got to lock him in place. Give me a different somebody else to move. So, you know, we figured these things out as part of the solution discovery process to find out what kinds of d- decisions are going to be acceptable in the environment, business environment that you're sure. You know, you talked a lot about where we can apply optimization. I'm curious now for some of the more necessary skills. What have you seen? What used to be a skill set for this? What's up and coming skill sets? How can we? become better optimizers? Well, yeah, given that I have a PhD in operations research, I would say, there's, so you go get a degree. Uh, some of the now business analytics and data science curriculum are including optimization as a couple of courses that are in there. Um, there is some things that are happening like in the Coursera world and from some of the vendors uh, that are starting to produce um, online learning materials, uh, especially targeted at the data science community for them to learn um, how to use this. There's two aspects to it. One is, how do you recognize that this is a problem where optimization is uh, applicable? And the second part is, okay, now that I know it's optimization, how do I, how do I make it happen? What do I need to do? And there's kind of an art and a science to using it. So when we build optimization applications, I the analogy I use is that we're building a custom car. Inside the car is an engine. So there are some different providers that provide the engine that actually does all the math. I mentioned Cplex earlier. I was one of the developers of Cplex. That's one of the engines you can buy from IBM. There's also from Groby and FICO has Express and there's some open source stuff, but it ain't that good. Um, you really got to go to the commercial world because these algorithms are sophisticated um, and require, if you want to get really good performance and reliability and robustness, you got to go to commercial vendors. So that gives you the engine. Around That engine is now going to require you to build a mathematical model that's going to represent your decision problem, which is now going to integrate data. That's kind of like the tar- tires of the car. And then typically you're going to build it in an application that's going to have a user interface so people can see the decisions. That's the steering wheel of the car. So when you put the whole car together, you have to build that mathematical model. How do I model the decisions that people are making that are like, these are the quantitative things that have to be decided. And those quantities are generally have constraints, right? We don't have infinite resources. I can't, I don't have, you know, an infinite number of bolts. I don't have an infinite amount of money. I'm limited in these resources. So how do you model that mathematically in a way that the solver can then solve the problem? There's an art and a science to modeling. Right. You can read a lot of textbooks that give a lot of examples. There's a wealth of academic papers that show models for a variety of different problems. Um, But what models work well and based upon your data is something you learn over time. I'm a better modeler today than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's an experience thing. So, you know, we help a lot of our customers, um, even folks that have a similar background to myself, We'll work with them because we're bringing our experience to the table and saying, hey, we can show you some things to do more, better or different. You know, we one of the things I think that was in the um, 
description of my bio is that you know we have a model review and validation service so we will go in for a couple of weeks we'll talk to somebody who's already built a model but it's not working well and we'll say let's find out what is the business problem you're trying to solve how did you try to solve it oh here's some tricks we can use so an example of that i'll give was a, a project we did for birchbox um, they were using a solver they had a, uh, their own big machine it had 32 processors the problem was taking about 48 hours to solve uh, they were deciding basically how to configure the boxes they send to customers every month and um it, so we came in and we evaluated that model and said, hey, there's a better way of doing it. And we came up with an a new algorithm that is leveraging optimization. It's still optimization, actually, a couple of different models that kind of talk to each other. And now we solve the problem in average in 15 minutes. Wow. It's a game changer for them. Because that makes the guy, so much sense. The so there, there used to be somebody it. sitting at a desk with all the components and playing around until and you got it to using the optimization model and clicking the button and, and then waiting, have to wait 20, 48 hours to get an answer. And sometimes, because of the data, there would be no answer. So he basically would lose his weekends and evenings. And then when we were all done, he said, this is great. I just got my weekends back because now I know I can get an answer. Not only can I get an answer to the problem I want to solve, I can find out if what I'm trying to do is not feasible. Right. So and that was also part of the, the demand. So by rethinking the problem and coming up with a different way of modeling in a math, still using optimization under the hood. Right. But changing that model because of our experience in modeling and solving problems, we were huh. able to deliver that benefit to. You know, and then you customers. pivot instead of having this poor soul rack his head against the wall for two days. You're like this piece of the puzzle is not going to work. Take it out. And OK, we'll ship that one out next month. What can we. Well, actually, I mean, what happens is they had a deadline every month. They have to yeah. come up with a solution. So now they could experiment a lot more with Very things cool. and, and ways of evaluating these different configurations. So, you know, we do this kind of work. Like, so, you know, you ask the question of like the skills that are needed, there's good coursework that's out there, both that you can get, you know, in university degrees, um, as well as textbooks and what have you. But it, there is kind of you to solve the really harder problems. That's when people come to us because we've been doing it for such a long time. So uh, I would like to ask, what advice would you give to someone who's just coming into the field, who's thinking, hey, I, I probably want to, to do a degree in, in operations research? Well, uh, so the programs have kind of been rebranded. Re re, um, You'll see uh, now programs that are in business analytics, uh, you know, analytics programs that are typically at a master's level. Um, you will also see programs, uh, some of the data science programs as well um both online as well as being in person and um so those are good things to do is just go take a year um i've been mentoring a woman who actually you know she was a new mom and she wanted to get back at, you know get a new degree and over the course of three years she would take one course a semester and finally is finishing her degree and now getting a job in, in the area of analytics um so that's generally what most people do there is again online work but the, the best way of learning is doing um, oh, and, you, and you really have to get in and start solving problems and and to, and hopefully um, be able to work with other people that understand it, that can act help you in a kind of a mentoring leadership thing. So, you know, we bring on new people here and I serve as one of those folks that, you know, teaches our younger folks, hey, here's, yeah, you've got your skills, you've got the basics, but here's some other ways of thinking about how to solve the problem 
and you know that makes them better on their next project yeah teaching the art part of the that. art yeah the yeah. art part is it's unfortunately it's a it's a real challenge to teach that aspect of it and um you know and then you you also you read good places to go to are you know i'm a member of informs and uh informs mm -hmm. has conferences uh, both a big conference in the fall and another smaller conference that i just came back from in colorado where you'll get to meet other people that are doing this and talk to the vendors and find out more and have other learning opportunities both those conferences the vendors will have workshops before the conference where you can go in and learn about the products and learn about the things that are being done. So, you know, going in and uh, informs as a, which is informs.org serves as a great resource for uh, learning more about the area. Thank you. Irv, that's some really great tips and advice for people who are interested and want to pursue, I think this very necessary and, and continuously growing career. As we've come to the final question of the show, I want to bring it back to you. Uh, as an individual. And I couldn't help but notice that on uh, the bio pic that you shared with us for your Dojo Live landing page, and today on the show, you happen to be wearing a hat. What's up with the hat? Well, so um, back in like 1991, um, when I was still a professor at Princeton, um, I had won an award um, along with some colleagues uh, in our field. And I went to this conference that I think it was in Amsterdam. And I was a young person. People didn't know who I was, right? And I had always wanted a hat like this. This is actually version six of the hat, but I had because yes, I had to. Sometimes I lose. I'm gonna say six hats six. since 1991. Yeah. Your hats tend to last a really long time. Yeah, sometimes I lose, I've lost them in a taxi on a plane. They get dirty, all sorts of things. But they all pretty much look like my this one. My look looks pretty similar to the first one. I had always wanted a hat like this, so I bought the hat and I wore it to the conference, and. Um, and then I realized that so my senior colleagues who I had won the award with, they were all saying, who's this Irv Lustig guy? And they and he said, go find the guy with the hat. And I realized, oh, this works, right? It's now part of my brand. So um, that people this now know. This is optimization at play. That's right. So I so basically <laughs> it became part of my brand. People know me as the guy with the hat. So I only wear it in professional settings like this when I go to conferences. Um, I don't usually wear a hat in my home office like I'm doing today. Um, but it's also one thing is now I can't stop wearing the hat because everybody knows it. But um, in fact, I was just at a, a meeting uh, this last week and uh, I met somebody there and he says, yeah, you know, I'm going to remember you and, and who you were because of your hat. So <clears throat> I use that as kind of a mnemonic device. I, yeah, I think I even have it on my LinkedIn page. Why I wear a hat is like, well, you'll remember, you'll say, you know, there was this optimization stuff this guy talked about and he was wearing a hat. The guy with the hat knows about optimization and hopefully that connection will then uh, make them realize that, hey, there's some more conversations we can have. It's absolutely incredibly smart. Uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. I, it optimization in a very practical way. And I think we can all come up with our own identifiers, right? I'm going to walk away with that. I guess I'm the girl with the curly hair. <laughs> Yeah, but there's a lot of girls with curly hair. So that's that's, maybe I have to dye it purple or something. The thing that's hard is that some other people at, at conferences have started wearing hats, and I walk up to them and I said, I'm sorry, I'm the guy with the hat. I'm the original. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure getting to know you today, learning from you. I thank you so much for, for your time with us, um, teaching us all about optimization, its applications, and of course, how Princeton Consultants uh, makes that a reality for, for your customers. Um, stick around for just a minute as we go off air. But before we do, I would like to remind our viewers that we actually have 
one more show this week. Tomorrow we'll be talking with Debarga. I'm sorry. I know he goes by Didi, and this is probably why, because I don't know how to pronounce his first name. Debagaya, I believe, Das, who is the founding engineer at a company named Gleam. He's going to be talking about how to build AI for enterprise and ask, answering the question of how will AI transform businesses and what are people trying and what are the difficulties. So catch us tomorrow here on Dodge Live at 10 o'clock a.m. Pacific. Thank you again, Herb, and thank you, Jorge. Thank you for having me. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com.